So tonight I'd like to consider one basic and essential question, and that is, can we be happy in our lives? Is this really possible? And there are two overarching perspectives in Buddhism that illuminate this question. And these two perspectives provide a bridge for or between our deepening meditative insights and our lives in the world. And they're two of the most fundamental aspects of the Buddha's teachings. That is the teachings on karma and the teachings on emptiness. Very often as people learn about these two aspects, karma and emptiness, questions often come up about how they relate or don't relate uh, to each other. If there's no karma, if there's no self, who experiences karmic results? That question must have been asked 10,000 times. If there's no self, who experiences the fruit of, of actions? If everything is empty, what does it matter what we do? And last year at the three-month course, one of the questions was asked, if we kill mindfully, is that okay? So clearly there are some uncertainties or confusions about the relationship of karma and emptiness. What we can come to understand as our practice and our awareness deepens, is that even as we realize that things are insubstantial, are empty, empty of self, still there is a lawful unfolding, there is a lawful continuity to what arises in our lives. There's a lawful continuity to unfolding experience. Everything arises out of causes and conditions, even as those very causes and conditions are seen to be selfless. So the possibility for happiness, both in our lives and in the world, rests on one basic understanding. And that is that everything has its origin in the mind. The unfolding of our lives begins in the mind. As you know, the famous first verse in the Dhammapada, where the Buddha says, mind is the forerunner of all things. So we need to explore and investigate the nature of this mind. How is it working? How does it create happiness and suffering for ourselves and others? Now in one of the clearest models describing the nature of the mind, which we find in reference in the suttas, but also elaborated in the Abhidharma, the Buddhist psychology, we see that 
there is consciousness, and consciousness is simply the knowing faculty. In Buddhism, that's how consciousness is defined, that which knows. But then along with consciousness, in each moment, there arises a whole array of different mental factors, different mental qualities. And these mental factors are continually conditioning and reconditioning our minds in different ways. They recondition the patterns of our lives. So, for example, the mental factors of love, of fear, of anger, of joy, of happiness, of mindfulness, of ignorance. Consciousness simply knows, but consciousness is colored by or conditioned by each of these factors working in their own way. One of the powers of especially intensive meditation practice, as well as sort of a careful and wise attention in our lives, is that it brings us to a very immediate and direct and intimate understanding of what leads, what factors lead to more suffering for us and which factors of mind lead to happiness. And this direct seeing is so important because then it's no longer second-hand knowledge. It's no longer just theoretical or something we're reading in a book. We're seeing it for ourselves. And it's in that moment that knowledge becomes wisdom when we make it our own. So the Buddha expressed this wisdom, which came out of his own direct seeing. He expressed this wisdom of what leads to what in what he called the law of karma. That is the law of cause and effect, the understanding that actions bring about results. And he identified the karmic force coming out of the mental factor of volition or intention. So this is the understanding that all volitional intentional activity of body, of speech, and of mind, because of the power of intention, it brings about certain consequences. It brings about certain results, both in the present and in the future. So we can hear that, and it's not terribly difficult to grasp intellectually or conceptually. But the opportunity you have here is to look very carefully at what is an intention, what is a volition. So it's not just an abstraction of, oh yes, that's some mental factor, but we are actually seeing it, experiencing the force, the energy of it. Notice that moment when you are about to do something or about to say something. The quality of that impulse to do 
the choice, that moment of choice to do, the willing quality of the mind, we can get a very uh, clear understanding of the experience of this factor of intention, of volition. Last year when I was sitting here, did a two-month retreat, and I started playing again just with looking more and more carefully at this question, well, what is an intention? And I was doing it in the walking meditation. And it was just so interesting because I would be standing there I'm just looking and waiting, (laughs) watching to see, okay, what's going to actually initiate the move? And sometimes there would be the thought that I was about to move, but I didn't move. So I thought, well, that's not quite it. That's almost like the precursor to the intention. And that thought that I was about to move might occur several times, and then I noticed that at a certain point, it was almost like there was this command function in the mind. You know, about to move, about to move, about to move, do it. (laughs) And it was a very unique moment. It was a very unique feeling. And I called it the command moment. I don't know if this this is uh, traditional Abhidhamma language, so I'm just... (laughs) sharing with you how I experienced it in my practice. What I would suggest is looking. So you, so you get a very visceral feeling of this power or the quality that wills us to do something. Because the Buddha is saying that's the quality that, that has this tremendous energy within it. And of course, the intention of the volition is not, does not just arise at the beginning of an action, but it's actually occurring moment after moment throughout the action. It's what keeps the action happening. So even within a step, if the intention stops arising, the leg stops moving. Take a look, you know, and really see. There's a line from Dylan Thomas which I don't really understand, but when I read it, somehow it reminded me of the power of intention. The line is from one of his poems, and he wrote, the force that through the green fuse drives the flower. So I don't know, it was just that idea of the force that through the green fuse drives the flower. The force that through the five aggregates <laughs> drives, <laughs> drives activity. That's the force of intention. So although these moments of volition, kind of that, the willing to do something, although these moments are very quick, and we could think of the intention as just being a very small moment, it has huge consequences in the same way that a very small seed can become a huge redwood. There is a potential within it 
that has this power to bring about huge consequences for us. Now the intention or the energy of intention or volition is in itself a neutral factor. It's neither wholesome or unwholesome. It's rather the force that simply gathers all the other mental factors and directs it to accomplish something. What determines the particular karmic fruit of any action, it's like the energy is carried by the intention, but what determines the karmic fruit is the motivation associated with that intention. And you know, you're familiar with what the Buddha described as the three wholesome and unwholesome roots of greed, hatred, delusion, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. That's a, a very simple framework for looking at the motives associated with our intentions. And there's one teaching which for me has become just an essential reference point in my understanding of the Dharma, in my understanding of practice, and in my life. It really sums up something that is so crucial in this question of can we be happy in our lives? And that is the teaching that everything rests on the tip of motivation. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. So it's essential that we really look and see clearly, which is not an easy task very often, what our motives actually are. So our challenge is to integrate our deepening understanding of selflessness, of the emptiness of all phenomena, to integrate that deepening insight with our understanding of the law of karma, that each of our actions, because of the power contained within intention or volition and determined by the particular motivation, has the power to bring about results. So this integration of emptiness and karma has been expressed or talked about by different teachers in different ways. Padmasambhava, the great Indian adept who brought Buddhism to Tibet, he expressed it in this very well-known teaching. He said that though my view, my understanding, is as vast as the sky, my attention to the law of karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. So even though our view of emptiness may be profound, at the same time, we need to attend to the law of karma with that degree of refinement, of attention. The Korean master, Sansanim, Um, he expressed it in a very Zen-like way. 
He said, there's no right and no wrong, but right is right and wrong is wrong. And that's just another way of holding these two, emptiness, selflessness, and karma. We need to hold them together. There's no right and no wrong. Everything's empty. Yet right is right and wrong is wrong. And His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, said something quite startling in talking about these two aspects of the teachings. He said, if you had to choose between emphasizing the teachings on emptiness or on karma, he suggested paying attention to karma. Because it would be so easy to fall into the trap of, oh, everything's empty, nothing matters, and that be the cause of huge suffering for ourselves and others. So how can we understand how karma plays itself out in our lives? And again, not as a Buddhist philosophical treatise, but really in our own direct experience. What are the different ways that our actions of body, speech, and mind bring about results? There's one aspect which is called present karma. And we can understand this when we notice the immediate effect in our minds of different mind states. What does it feel like when the mind is filled with love or filled with anger? When it's filled with fear or joy? When it's being truthful, when it's being dishonest? There's a, ve- there's a very immediate result. There is a present action and a present result, which we can really taste very, very clearly if we're paying attention. We can also see the present karma in terms of how people are responding to us when we are acting out these different mind states. We see the immediate result of those actions. We can also understand present karma when we look at the various things that we undertake to do. Because we can see how the present qualities of mind that we bring to the task conditions the result. If we bring effort, if we bring energy, if we bring perseverance, if we bring discernment, if we bring wisdom, there is going to be a present karmic result from the application of those qualities. And when they're absent, there is a, there is a corresponding result. So that's one way we can understand cause and effect. Another way is something that happens a lot in intensive meditation practice and can be the cause either of tremendous distress if we don't understand it or tremendous opening if we do. And that is the understanding that the mind retains the impressions of all of our past actions. 
it's all in there. And when we make the space, when we get quiet enough, all of these impressions start to surface. When we think of past wholesome actions, when those are the impressions that are surfacing, very often delight arises. So that's a karmic fruit. Often when we are reliving the impressions of past unwholesome actions, So then there is remorse or regret. I'm sure many of you have heard me tell my Peace Corps chicken story. (laughs) But in training, in Peace Corps training years ago, even though we were being trained to teach English, they had the idea that it would be good for us to kill chickens. You know, I don't know what they thought the purpose was. And at that time, when I was 20 years old, you know, in this training program, and I had this very deluded idea that, yeah, this is something I should be able to do. I'm a man. Men should be able to do this. You know, so... They got they we worked in pairs, and you know so this friend of mine was holding the chicken, and I took you know the knife and and I have a picture from that time of me standing there holding this now headless chicken, just with this big smile on my face as if I accomplished something really great. But years later, you know I was in India when I was doing my practice, and all of this started coming back to me, and it was horrible. You know, as I became conscious and mindful of what I had actually done, you know, free from... <laughs> it was such a lesson in the power of delusion, you know, and how when delusion is present, we can do these really unskillful things thinking that it's a good thing to do. It's quite amazing. But what happened in the course of the practice was it just kept coming up in my mind with tremendous vividness. I was reliving it and feeling terrible. This went on for days, but I was just watching and watching and watching. When we can bring awareness and compassion to all of these arising impressions, it actually becomes a purifying process because we're connecting with the truth of it. We're seeing it, we're opening to it. And through the power of mindfulness and acceptance of the fact, yes, this is what happened, the mind actually can begin to let go. And this is exactly what I found. You know, at first, it was so emotionally painful. And then I was just watching and watching and watching and watching and watching, and it really began to decharge. Decharge. I don't know if that's a word. Discharge. Discharge the the intensity. There's a very important distinction, and I think it's very helpful to bear in mind as we experience this kind of karmic unfolding, as we're reliving 
past particularly unwholesome actions because they're going to come up at one time or another. It's been very helpful for me to distinguish between the feeling of guilt and the feeling of remorse. Because at first, as I would relive certain actions that I've done that were not wholesome, that were harmful, strong feelings of guilt would arise. But when I looked at that carefully, and was feeling, and I, was, I looked at it because, because obviously the feeling of guilt is, is a tremendous suffering. When I looked at it carefully, I saw that guilt is really an ego trip. Guilt is just reinforcing the sense of self, the sense of I, in a negative way. I'm so bad. You know, I'm worthless. I'm unworthy. But the key component of all those feelings is the I, is the self. And so I developed a technique based on a line that I had read often in the suttas where the Buddha, Mara would come to the Buddha and the Buddha would say, Mara, I see you. So whenever guilt would arise, I called it wagging the finger at Mara. You know, so guilt would arise in my mind, oh Mara, I see you. This is just a trick of the ego. As I disengaged from that trap of guilt, then I began to appreciate much more the quality of remorse. And by that I mean that quality which sees and acknowledges, yes, something was some unskillful action. But can we see it with wisdom, with discernment, acknowledging it, taking responsibility for it, and also seeing the impermanence of it. So that we allow for forgiveness. And this could be true forgiveness of ourselves or forgiveness of others. We're not holding on, we're not constellating the self in the assessment of the action. So karma is experienced also, there's the present karma, there's karma experienced as the reliving of past impressions, wholesome and unwholesome. Sometimes it's very delightful things that come to mind, and we really experience a great delight. The way our practice unfolds is also a karmic result. The Buddha talked of four kinds of progressions on the path. That it's either slow or fast, and either painful, predominantly painful, or predominantly pleasant. It's slow if in the past we have not cultivated, you know, a very sharp discerning wisdom. It's fast if in the past we have. It's painful if in the past there's a big, past, I mean past lives, big accumulation of uh, unwholesome acts. It's pleasant if we're experiencing the fruit of past wholesome acts. So we can be going on the path of slow and painful 
Well, quick and painful. <laughs> fast and painful or fast and pleasant? Did I get it? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you understand. I won't bother reading <laughs> The reason I like this, uh, the reason I like this expression, is because it depersonalizes it. You know, it's so easy for us to judge our practice. You know, and there have been so many times when I've just felt like I'm plodding along and nothing much is happening, and it's a lot of pain. And it was very helpful just to see. Yes, it's just unfolding according to karmic conditions. That's all. And it doesn't matter. You know, we just walk the path. And the insight that we develop can happen no matter how it's unfolding. And so to see it as impersonal is, for me, very freeing. In that regard, I'll read one. This is from uh, the Terigata which is the story, the stories of the nuns, you know, from, mostly from the time of the Buddha who became enlightened. I think this is one of my favorite enlightenment accounts. It is 25 years since I went forth. Not even for the duration of a snap of the fingers have I obtained stilling of mind. Not having obtained peace of mind drenched with desires for sensual pleasures, holding out my arms, crying out, I entered the monastery. Having heard the doctrine, doctrine, I sat down on one side. I know, I know that I have lived before. The deva I has been purified. Supernormal power has been realized by me. I have attained annihilation of the kalesas, the Buddhist teaching has been done. 25 years, not stilling of the mind, even for a snap of the fingers. And then one day, goes into the monastery, sits down, hears the teaching, everything is accomplished. And so even when we think nothing is happening, as we continue our practice, all the conditions are coming into place. All the conditions are being ripened. And it happens in its own time. That's another component of karmic unfolding. Another way we can see karma, see and understand it, is noticing how we develop certain habits and patterns of mind through habitual action. You know, in this way, it's really the development of our personalities. We repeat certain patterns of body, of speech, of mind, and we become a generous person, a loving person, an angry person, a fearful person. Those personalities are emerging from a repetition of the actions that we perform. You know, in the Buddhist typology, <clears throat> which again I think is useful, the, the different personality types of the greedy type, the angry type, the deluded type, each with a positive counterpart. For me, it's been helpful to recognize, both in myself and others, 
That's that pattern. Because, again, it depersonalizes it. And so we're not taking it to be self, either in ourselves or other people, but we see that it's just the playing out of a pattern. And so it helps keep our mind more equanimous. The implication here, which is tremendously important for how we live our lives, is that every time we act in a certain way, it's planting the seed for that action to happen again. We're strengthening that quality. Every time we act, we are practicing something. And so we want to know what is it that we're practicing. Are we practicing greed? Are we practicing generosity? So this is a karmic unfolding based on our present actions. It takes on meaning when we don't underestimate the power of small actions. Sometimes I think we just pay attention to karma with the big things. You know, maybe like the precepts, you know, where we really take the precepts and commit to them. Well, those are, those are major, major acts. But what about all the small things we do during the day? Are we attending to the quality that is being practiced, that is being strengthened? So don't, don't underestimate the power of small actions. Maybe small actions or acts of renunciation. You know, just small ones. Not, not having the extra cup of tea. Or not walking into the dining room without looking at the bulletin board. Or just something where there's an impulse, a desire, and we renounce it. There's something being strengthened there. There's a power that's being developed. The practice of generosity I found a, a wonderful way, not necessarily here while you're on retreat, but, but in the world. I tried to make it a practice that when I have the thought to give something, I actually do it. Because it's so easy to have a thought, a wholesome thought, and just let the thought come and go. It's possible to see it and to practice acting on it, and it strengthens that power me. We really need to make this reflection on karma, on seeing our motives, a genuine practice in our lives, because everything rests on the tip of motivation. I don't know if there's a way to emphasize this enough. And it's so interesting to go into the richness and complexity of our motivations. This is not a simple thing. 
And yet, when we're paying attention, we know, before we act, if we're paying attention, we know whether this is a wholesome action or not. We know whether this is actually leading to someplace we want to go or leading to something we don't. So it becomes a very powerful practice for us. We see where is this motivation leading us? Do we want to go there? Okay, so that's another playing out of karma, just the development of certain habit patterns of mind. Another way karma plays out in our lives of seeing how very specific types of actions lead to specific results. And this was described very explicitly by the Buddha in one sutta when somebody came to him and asked him, you know, I see so many differences among people, among beings. Some are rich, some are poor, some are healthy, some are ill, some are beautiful, some are not beautiful. Some are wise, some are dull. So many differences among beings. How do you explain it? The Buddha gave a very, very direct answer to this question. And I found his answer helpful not so much for looking back, but rather for emphasizing the power of the actions we can take going forward. So this is what he said, and this, I'm, just, I'm just the messenger here. He said, great wealth is the result of generosity, and lack of wealth is the result of lack of generosity. Health is the result of non-harming other beings. Ill health is the result of having harmed other beings. Great beauty is the result of gentleness of speech. Lack of beauty is harshness of speech. Wisdom is the result of a questioning investigative mind. Dullness is the result of a mind that never investigates. He talked about these agreeable and disagreeable situations. And he described people moving in different directions. That there are some people who are living in shadow, that is with difficult present circumstances, and doing just a lot more unwholesome action and going towards more shadow. There are people living in difficult present circumstances, but who are going to the light because they're cultivating wholesome states. 
there are people living in the light, present wonderful circumstances going towards the shadow. Because even in their present good circumstances, they don't understand they're committing unwholesome actions. And there are beings living in light going towards more light. Living in good circumstances, understanding, performing wholesome actions, going towards even more light, more good circumstances. Now here it's important to take very great care because in listening to this, it is very easy to misinterpret the understanding of these karmic laws and consequences. And they have been misused and misunderstood in some very harmful ways. So I think we need a tremendous amount of care here. Because sometimes we confuse this understanding of cause and effect, that things arise out of conditions, we can confuse it or mix it with attitudes of blame, of judgment, of resignation, of indifference. And the understanding of karma has been misused in all of these ways. You know, we can get caught up in the sense of judging ourselves as being bad or the very unfortunate tendency of blaming the victim. You know, and, oh, that's just their karma. It is possible to understand, to bring the understanding that circumstances have causes and conditions behind them, including our own past actions, as well as other external conditions. We can understand that one's own actions is a contributing cause to the current conditions of our lives and still respond to present suffering with love and compassion. So we understand that, yes, this may well have come about through past unskillful actions, but instead of that leading to a sense of blaming or apathy or indifference, we understand the cause and effect relationship and still we are responding to the present suffering with compassion because we're all in the same predicament. Robert Thurman, who's a great Buddhist scholar and Tibetan practitioner, he used a wonderful example for this. He he teaches now at Columbia in New York. And he gave the example of a group of people on a subway car in varying conditions, as those of you who've been on the New York subway, you know, there's everything. And there's you know, people going on the car, you know, happily, you know, reading the newspaper or eating lunch, and maybe there's some really crazy people in the car, or, uh, beggars in the car, people very sick, whatever. The whole, the whole of humanity is represented. Well, he suggested imagining being on this subway car 
with this group of people forever. Right? For eternity, we're in this car with this group of people. So then what would be our response to the people who are in one way or another suffering? I think our natural response would be to try to ease their suffering because it would also make us happier as well. The more everybody in the car is content, the more peaceful and content and happier we are. So that is the appropriate and natural response when we see both the different karmic conditions of people, but realize, yeah, we're all in this together for who knows how long. Can we help in some way? One other aspect to understanding karma, which I think is essential to put into the equation, and that is that it it is impossible to fully understand it in the context of one lifetime. You know, because very often we see people, or perhaps even children, you know, who have not done anything particularly unskillful, who may be suffering in dreadful ways. And so within the context of a single lifetime, it does not make sense. So it's important to remember that even though we can see it playing out in various of the ways I mentioned, we can see it playing out in our lives. The full understanding of it really would take the vision of action and result over the course of innumerable lifetimes. With this greater vision, we can see, I think, or or intuitively understand that in this long samsaric wandering, we have all done harmful things, things that harmed others, harmed ourselves, and we've also been great benefactors to others and to ourselves. And in our lives, we are experiencing the suffering and the happiness that comes as the karmic fruit of these actions. But when we see or we reflect on the fact that we're, we've all done this, we're all in the same boat, then we can relate to ourselves and to each other without blame and without exclusion. There's really a sense of compassion for the suffering that's there. If we can understand the law of karma, and again, not theoretically, but really look at the ways it is unfolding in our lives, it changes our relationship to our experience. There's a much deeper acceptance of what it is that's arising rather than resentment when it's unpleasant or a certain kind of pride or self-satisfaction when it's pleasant. 
we don't get caught in that so much and we just see, yes, this is arising out of conditions. Now the Buddha talked of the, the eight great vicissitudes of life, you know, of pleasant, pleasure and pain, of gain and loss, of praise and blame, of fame and disrepute. And these are the conditions that just keep changing, even for the Buddha. You know, in some of the stories, after he was enlightened, after he was awakened, some of the things that people came and accused him of and blamed him. This is somebody with you know, this extraordinary karma resulting in Buddhahood. The eight vicissitudes of life happen to everyone. Can we see that as a karmic unfolding and really rest in equanimity? Acceptance of changing conditions and seeing that they are karmic fruits does not imply resignation and it does not imply passivity in the face of them. It allows for appropriate response to situations. The question though is, can this response come from a place of wisdom rather than a place of reactivity. And this is where it all comes back again to the tip of motivation. Yes, there are karmic conditions in our lives and the lives of everyone else. How are we responding to them? What's the motive? with which we're responding. Is it anger? Is it hatred? Is it fear? Is it compassion? Is it wisdom? So when we reflect on this teaching of karma, it leads to a greater acceptance, which then allows for a wiser response. When we reflect on the law of karma, it also leads us to take a much greater responsibility for our own lives, for our actions, because we begin to take a longer-range view of things. You know, so much of Western, and particular, particularly American culture, is about instant gratification. It's just, in some ways, we're very short-sighted, and we see this play out not only in the choices often that people make, but in the realm of politics and what's happening in the world. We often, in the environment, we often take a very short-sighted view. If we reflect on karma and see, yes, our actions have long-term consequences, long-term results, then we begin to take a much greater sense of responsibility for the choices that we're making. It really leads to a very great interest and attentiveness to what we're doing and to the motivations behind them. Without this attentiveness, without this awareness of action and consequence, 
what happens is that we simply are living out the old habit patterns of our minds. We're living out the conditioned habits. And it prevents us from making wise choices. Reflecting on the law of karma also becomes a very strong motivation to practice. Because we can reflect on the rarity of conditions that need to come together for us to practice in this way on the path of awakening. It's very rare in the world. I think much more often it's the mind state of me and that chicken. Just the mind clouded by delusion, acting out in all kinds of ways, creating sometimes very unskillful consequences. And just when we see that, when we see the power of ignorance and the the awakening potential of mindfulness, of awareness, of attention to our actions, really becomes a tremendous uh, spur to practice. Now, each one of our actions are like drops of water. And it's drop by drop the bucket gets filled And it's drop by drop, our mind gets filled with different qualities. Drop by drop, it gets filled with wholesome states, with unwholesome states. And every action we do makes it easier for that action to happen again. And we know, know, very, very intimately, the huge power of habit. So we need to take care with what we are habituating. There's one last thing to say. There's there's a lot. We could go on for a long time about karma. But one last thing to say. Within the Buddhist understanding, it is not a closed mechanistic system. It's not that you do this and this happens. It's a much more fluid, dynamic system with our present actions continually feeding in to this flow of cause and effect unfolding. So what we do in the present conditions the outcome of even past actions. So this is, this is a very dynamic understanding of the mind and the unfolding process. And it's spoken of how we can cover past unskillful actions with present skillful ones. And it mitigates the effect of the past unskillful actions. And the example which I think most of you are familiar with You know, it's like if you put salt in a glass, the whole water becomes, the taste of it is salty. You put that same amount of salt in a a pond, 
You don't taste the salt at all. When our minds are contracted, when our minds are small, when it's filled with unwholesome current states, then past unwholesome actions have a huge power. When our minds are vast, are open, are spacious, when we have insight into selflessness, then even though results of past unwholesome actions will come, they have a very different effect than when our minds are closed. So what we do now and how we are now very much influences our whole karmic unfolding into the future. The Buddha called the law of karma, understanding the light of, understanding the law of karma. He called it the light of the world, and I think it's just a beautiful image. It's the light of the world in that it illuminates what brings happiness and what brings suffering, and in that illumination, we can actually make choices. It gives us the power to shape our lives, to shape our destinies. Understanding the law of karma deeply, again, not philosophically, but experientially, is really the great empowerment of our being. I'd like to close just with a haiku poem by Basho. He wrote, The temple bell stops but the sound keeps coming out of the flowers. Temple bell stops, but the sounds keep coming out of the flower. So let's sit for a few minutes. Chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces
This talk was given by Joseph Goldstein at Forest Refuge on April 25, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.